Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milena. Hey, guys. Today, I am hungover. This episode is brought to you by rum, red wine, tequila, beer. Was it, were you guys drinking yingling? No, 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 no. It was a bunch of different kinds of beer. And it was white wine, excuse me. And yingling, as as okay as it is, it's still a lager. And that's piss water to me. So... <laughs> I'm picky. Well, guys. Milana, you've just insulted. Well, never mind, because I don't care enough about beer to know what's what. Yeah, um, I don't care. <laughs> it's fine. I am not a yangling person. I'm not a lager person. I have my craft beers because I was ruined, and I learned to drink beer in a city full of a bunch of really tasty beers. And if I ever move, I might die. I have a light, sour, cucumber, cantaloupe beer in the fridge right now. I haven't tried it yet. Megan, I'm hungover. Stop trying to make me throw up. I just, I, all right, fine. That's awful. I thought when you come visit, you could try. No, you know I don't like sour beers. But it's like a light sour. It's, all right, I'll try it. You never sip. You I'll never try sip. it, and then I'll give you the rest. All right. <laughs> This episode brought to you by alcohol. Alcohol. Usually I don't drink before I record, but there were extenuating circumstances. And we do record at like usually 8.30 in the morning on a Sunday. Uh. <laughs> so you'd have to be going pretty hard to be doing shots of tequila at like 8 in the morning. I want to cry. It's fine. All right, well. Uh, there's no there's no alcohol involved in the story that nope. I've got to share with you. Zero alcohol um, involved in my story. I've, in fact, this woman yeah. was so straight edge. Oh, we'll get to that. We'll get to it. It's fine. Yeah, but it sounds like with the way things end, like there should have been alcohol involved. There, yeah, there should have been alcohol in my story, but um, maybe there was some wine at some point, but. Me. Oh, hey, can I tell you something? This does not include last night where I ate like six pounds of cured meat, but I'm trying, trying to be a vegetarian slash pescatarian. Okay. All right. Trying. Because uh, you remember the last time I became a vegetarian and ate nothing but carbs, cheese, and jalapenos, and... I gained 20 pounds. I got really pale. Was that in high school? No, that was, it was the year after high school. So I was a, I graduated early. Oh. And I was a baby. You know, so I no, was 18. What? I don't, I don't know if, no, I don't remember. Was how do you not remember? I was remember? still in high school or when I was away at college? No, how do you not remember? No, you were still in high school. I had okay. graduated early. We had a, we had a I bet. know, I know. So, yeah, for those of you who don't know what the fuck we're talking about, I, little baby Milena, who wanted to save all the animals and get healthy, was like, I'm going to be a vegetarian to save the world. And Megan was like, yo, I don't believe you. You eat chicken wings like you need to breathe them in. 
Uh, I mean, you make your mother proud. I you do make <laughs> deep meet those suckers like no one's business. Oh, I mean, man, we're I'm... talking flesh to bone in like 0. 0.0 seconds. Oh, I'm so happy that I'm going to probably get wings later. Uh, but that's beside the point. Yeah, Megan didn't believe me. And she was like, if you become a vegetarian for at least six months, I'll buy you a steak. And I was like, no, Megan, you know I don't like steak. I hate steak. And I really hate steak. Uh, and I was like, how about instead of that, you become a vegan for three months, right? So I go through the whole thing. I'm vegetarian for six months. I eat like shit. I get 20 pounds. I'm sure I have some sort of deficiency because I didn't put any kind of protein in my body. I didn't eat eggs or beans or anything. And God forbid I put a vegetable in my goddamn body. Got through the six months. Megan becomes a vegan for three months. And once again, she kills everything she does. So of course... She killed her being vegan, and that shit followed her until now. She still makes vegetarian shit all the time, and I need that in my life. So maybe not today because I'm hungover, but I have been really good about sticking to only fish and vegetables lately. So when I come down there, I mean, we can do our usual, like, jalapeno poppers because I miss you, and I, we haven't had that in a while, but I'm going to mm-hmm. try to stick to not eating meat. Okay, well, we can we can definitely do that. It'd be fun. Drinking some more water. Are you ready to hear a really shitty story, Megan? I just, I know this one doesn't end well. No. No, it doesn't. But we gotta, we gotta talk about it. Yeah. We gotta do it. I know, not all our stories have happy endings. No. Um... And I told myself that this week, like, I was going to do, like, a behavioralist, like, an animal behavioralist, but I had realized that I hadn't done a mathematician. I mean, your last episode, Annie Easley, she was a mathematician. No, like... a rocket scientist. Yeah, like, she did something cool, you know? Uh, And technically, this lady did some cool shit, too, for her time, but I, like, haven't done, like, a true, like does not do anything else she's yeah she was hardcore math and that scares me because math is awful but we need to appreciate math and the people who are willing to do it my brain hurt a lot but i also bought a book i actually bought a book this time so my notes are longer than usual So that's exciting because I was like, I need to, I need to get, I figured a book would help me understand the math too, because I am super bad at it. Did it help? It did. It helped. It gave me some context that I really, really liked. So the book is called Hypatia of Alexandra uh, and it's by Michael A. B. Deacon. Okay. He took multiple sources, like main sources by like people like Dam- Damascus, like old, old sources. Uh, and he dives deep into like historical context and her math. Well, first off, how far back in time are we going? Okay, so that was my next point is no dates are 100 percent accurate because it was too long ago. Oh, I have to I have to start at like 5th century BCE to give you the full historical context. So she was born around like 350 to 370 CE. Okay. Yeah. So 4th century. 
Mm-hmm. But I have to give you okay. a background that spans back it. to the 5th century BCE because I don't know about you, but I don't remember a damn thing from world history. So I thought I would give us a refresher. Yeah, no, go for it, because, I mean, that history class in high school was quite a while ago now. It was quite a while. The first problem was that we didn't even have enough chairs, so we moved to an auditorium. Well, uh, you know, public education. Woot! So, Greece, the 5th century BCE, was a collection of city-states, and Athens was the best known. It was like an area known for philosophers, mathematicians. So... Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, etc., those people. Um, so Aristotle ended up teaching a guy who would eventually become known as Alexander the Great, who united the states into a single nation. Sorry, I hit something. Who united the states into a single nation. So academics were held in a high place in society. So no matter what happened, people were always pushing forward for learning more, um, researching more, teaching more, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so around 330 BCE, <laughs> I have AG as, as a short for Alexander the Great. So I wrote in 330 BCE, one of AG's generals, which I think sounds so much more badass. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one of AG's generals founded the city of Alexandria in northern Egypt, and it was called Alexandria. And then they created an institution of higher learning called the Museum in around 367 BCE. Okay? Okay. Okay. So the museum was more like a college campus than the museums we know today. So, like, scholars would actually live and study there. And it was around for about seven centuries. I think at its highest peak or point, uh, it had about half a million books in it. So it was big. And it focused on, like, math, science, astronomy. So during the seven centuries, it was around. Civil wars were happening all around it because we need to take over city-states, yada, yada, yada. Uh, well, not city-states, but we need to, like, fight over land and shit and religion. And it was just part of that. So the museum was finally a casualty of some of these wars around the third and fourth century. Uh, well, we'll get back to that. So the academics in Alexandria cranked out people like Archimedes and Euclid. So those are both famous mathematicians. Mm-hmm. So the makeup of Alexandria, people-wise, are both Greeks and Jews. So from the start, and I'm going to stress from the start, everyone had equal rights and equal opportunities as well as equal religious freedom. So starting religions of Alexandria, Hellenic, so Greek gods, etc., Judaism, and Christianity, which when it started was a minor religion, but it was still recognized by the empire. The Roman Empire split into the Eastern and Western Empires. The Western Empire was ruled by Rome, and the Eastern was ruled by Constantinople, which was the major Christian city, and the Christians were ready to fuck some shit up. And I'm not, like, talking externally. There was tension everywhere. So Christians were ready to fight, like, Hellenics, Neoplatonists, Jews... And even sects of the Christian belief that didn't quite agree on whether Jesus was God and man or if he was one of three parts or, like, how all of that worked. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So those guys were, like, excommunicated and under fire on a normal basis. So we're going to jet forward in time to the museum, like, where Hypatia was around. The reigning archbishop was named Cyril. The civil governor was named Orestes, and they're both Christian, but, but Orestes was more tolerant than Cyril. Okay? Okay. So, 
Late 4th century, one of the last known scholars trying to study, teach, and live peacefully at the museum was a guy named Theon of Alexandria. And I have a quote from this book that says, Theon of Alexandria is usually seen as a minor mathematician, important only because his additions and commentaries had great influence and provide us with information about more important original works by others. So that's what he did. But he was, okay. he was also, and this is really important, Hypatia's father. They were getting somewhere. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There are a lot of markers and sources saying that she witnessed one event, worked with her dad on the other thing, knew this one person or may or may not have died young. So people have tried to triangulate exactly what year she was born. Uh, it's really hard to do. There's no exact date. So people just think she was born sometime between 350 CE and 370 CE. We know, okay. we know zero things about her mother. So she was a daddy's girl. Same. She may or may not have had a brother named Epiphanius. Epiphanius? Whatever. The reason we're unsure is because it was he was mentioned in one of Theon's writings. Uh, it was dedicated to his quote-unquote technon, which is the Greek word, which could be translated as son, but it also could be translated as like a mentor, teacher, like talking about his yeah. favorite pupil sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but when Theon dedicated one of his writings to Hypatia, it was very clearly he used a word that could only be translated as like biological daughter. Okay. I think, what, this is like the third episode where someone that we've done were like, eh, they might have had a sibling. I'm not really sure. Yeah, I feel like people need to... Get on this more. So, unlike Theon, who was mostly a mathematician, Hypatia brought philosophy into her life as well. There was one point where she was compared to a guy named Isidorus, and for a second it made people think that she wasn't much of a philosopher. Like, there's a quote where she was compared to this guy, and the quote was, uh, He greatly outshone Hypatia not just as a man does over a woman, but in the way a genuine philosopher will over a mere geometer. And the rebuttal to that was much later in, like... In the 19th century, <laughs> it was a comment done by a guy, last name was Tannery, and the quote was, it means in plain English that Isidorus knew nothing of mathematics. So I thought that was pretty funny. Oh, shit. Some scholarly smackdown. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to go with her being a philosopher as well as a mathematician, and here's why. Okay. Hypatia ended up surpassing her father as a teacher, so she did not teach at the museum. So one reason was because it had run down by the time she started teaching, because it was a casualty of those wars. The other is because she taught at a place called the Neoplatonic School. So, do you, you know mentioned what? You mentioned Neoplatonic earlier, and I, I have no idea what that means. That was my next question I was going to ask okay. you. So, Neoplatonic. Platonism, the book tried to explain it, but he, the writer, the author is so flowery with his writing mm -hmm. that I wanted to punch him in the face. He was using words that I couldn't understand, and there was like a line of thought. Like, I have such a hard time with mathematics and philosophy as far as like intangible things, like on a normal basis, that he started going into it, and I was like, fuck you, fuck all of this. And I had to put my... Like, <laughs> I was like, I don't care about any theology. Just be a good person and move on with your life. Uh, <laughs> it was bad. I Googled it instead. <laughs> and uh, As uh, you do, yeah. As you do. 
And simply put, Neoplatonism is an offshoot of the Hellenistic philosophy Mm -hmm. that believes in something called the one or the good. And it's not a being. It's just, it's not even a consciousness. It's just like a unity in which all things are derived from. So there's like, like it can't even create. It's just there, right? Okay. It has a byproduct. It's called the noose, right? But it's also known as the intellect. And all it does is think about the one. Oh, yeah. No, I'm totally following. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm I'm barely following. Um, the byproduct of that thinking is called the soul. Uh, it's also immaterial, but somehow leads the way for the existence of the final leg of it, which is matter. And then the universe happened. So Sure. Okay. Sure. All right. Sure. I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't understand it, but she was definitely a Neoplatonist. Okay. And the reason for that, one, because she taught at the fucking school, and she had a pupil named Synesius of Cyrene, who eventually later became a Christian, but beforehand... Uh, he was absolutely a Neoplatonist. And he held her in the highest regards as, quote, a mother, sister, teacher, and a withal benefactress. So when they wrote to each other, there was, like, clearly a shared underlying theme of Neoplatonism. Okay. So, yeah, she was definitely more than a mathematician. There were a bunch of women mathematicians and teachers, but Hypatia was the shit. She asserted her right by teaching publicly, was level-headed and logical, could command a crowd. So sometimes she would just go outside of her house and start talking to people walking by about things, and then people would just, like, start to pile up and listen. She was regarded as beautiful. This was for her actual beauty, her sexy body, and her virtue. Yeah. So she turned some heads, and she would basically have to fend dudes off. And one of the biggest reasons for that is she never married and she practiced celibacy. Okay. Right? So you ready for something fun? Go for it. One guy was so into her and told her that he loved her all the time that in order to get him to chill the fuck out, she pulled out one of her menstrual napkins, said, it is this you love, young man, not my beauty, and threw it at him. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Gets those boys every time. <laughs> so at that time, can okay. you? What? Okay, I think we have a new solution to catcalling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, no, I mean, can you imagine someone rolling up beside you and like hollering? And let's say you've just you've packed for the moment. You've got in your back pocket and you just whip out and just lug a used <laughs> tampon at them. <laughs> Oh, fuck yes. Or a pad. I mean, either way, it sticks. Front or back, (laughs) it's going to (laughs) stick. Oh, my God. Oh, I was thinking about it. And it didn't tell me whether it was used or not used. But either way, boys are squeamish. So just throw something at them. (laughs) I think that's great. Oh, man. Uh, So, at that time, apparently, periods happened close to marrying age. So like, later in life than they do now. And because there was no contraception, women were pregnant and breastfeeding, like, all the time. So periods were rare, apparently. Uh, the fact that she had no husband, no kids, and plenty of periods told people that she wasn't just not fucking. She was completely untouched. And okay. you know <clears throat> how people get when they're like, ooh, virgin. I will sacrifice you. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, man. So she didn't want a man. She wanted to do math. And I can't relate to that. But you do you, boo. No, I'm just wondering. Maybe, you know, she's like, Psh, I don't need a man. I just need my math and my lady. And my lady. <laughs> I don't even think she's a, I think she just was like, fuck it. I just want to stare at numbers all day. Maybe she was asexual. I mean, I could see it. I could see it. Yeah. Being in the studio all the time. I really wish I was that person because sometimes a very nice looking <laughs> man walks by and I forget everything. Well, which... yeah. I mean, you've got your, your, your interests, your priorities. My priorities. Each their own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so you want to hear about her math or her death first? Oh, geez. Let's go with the math. Okay. I'm curious. No, okay, bear in mind, I know I touched on this a little bit. Was it last episode? Yeah, yeah, because you were explaining. No, two episodes ago, because you were explaining DNA to me. Yeah. Um, so while at university, I did not have to take a science class at all. I did <laughs> need one math class. By the grace of the gods, I got through it just barely. <laughs> No, I know. I had to, once I started, like, looking at these words, I was, like, things started, like, slowly coming back. And this is all stuff, well, m- not all of it, but some chunk of it, you you definitely had, because it was, like, from eighth grade geometry. Okay, all right, but just keep in mind, I don't remember any of this shit. I'll tell you. I got you. And that, God bless any effort, but keep in mind, <laughs> I'm probably not going to retain the finer details of it. So, I know. I, full I disclosure. Tried to keep it, I tried to keep it short, one, because of that, and two, because I also hate math. Yeah. Uh, but I can't I can't ignore the mathematicians in the world, so. No, no, no. So, yeah, go for it. I'm listening. Here we go. I'm going to try. I swear. Fucking hate math. This is for you guys. All right? So, first thing she does, uh, she co-writes something with her dad, and they worked on a revision of Euclid's geometry for their students. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the masses, so, like, as a more layman's and, like, alternative, like, solutions, that sort of thing. You don't remember eighth grade geometry, right? There's a lot about eighth grade that I just don't remember. <laughs> oh, was it ninth grade geometry? Yeah, we did it in ninth grade. Sorry. So, theories and proofs, you remember, like, the you know, you had to write the proof that this particular thing proved, I guess. So, like... The congruence of triangles. So, like, how the triangle sum, angle sum, so how the, ang- like, the sum of all the angles of a triangle should always equal 180 degrees. Okay. Do you remember that? No. Okay. So, you would use these, like, proofs and theories, and you would solve a problem using the, the theories that you know to, like, find the angle of a triangle or find the length of... A rectangle or like okay all right you know what i mean so she re-upped that with her dad and okay. then all right she took on arithmetic and she wrote 13 books on diophantus and his arithmetic so it's called mm-hmm. comments on diophantus arithmetic and diophantus was a greek mathematician who lived during the third century and was considered the father of algebra and arithmetic and whose work focused on algebraic equations and number theory so the word diophantine equations or the that phrase comes from his name and it is a polynomial equation do you remember what a polynomial equation is? i love you so much i have no idea okay it usually is in two or more unknowns 
Um, so one famous one, again, is the Pythagorean equation. Okay. All right. So her commentaries included some alternative solutions and, like, just incorporated his work in with her work. She then went on to write eight books on the math done by a guy named Apollonius of Perga, who was an Alexandrian geometer. Ah, so he did geometry. Yay! He studied conic sections. Do you know what a conic section is? I've, I have no idea what that is. The rule is if you cut into a cone, it's going to make a shape. And those shapes yes. are actually found a lot in nature. So his work was talking about how those sections naturally showed up in the universe. Mm-hmm. So specifically, the irregular orbits of the planets. Ah, okay. So Hypatia's books made his work more accessible to the general public. Again, she's rewriting, she's putting commentary, she's trying to teach people. So she, like, computes or processes this, like, more intense work, and she's, like, spitting out things that people can understand. Yeah, very much like a, very much like a, like a facilitator to, like, bridge that gap between, the, you know, common knowledge and, like, the, the academics. Right. And honestly, okay. that's probably why she commanded so many crowns is because she could. She had that, that power. She made it accessible. So. Yeah. Yeah. She designed the plain astrolabe. So what that is, it was used for measuring the positions of stars, planets, the sun, things like that. It served as a guide for sailors, engineers, architects to determine distances by triangulation. So she did that. That's pretty badass. Yeah. And then finally, she developed an apparatus for distilling water, an instrument for measuring the level of water, and a graduated brass hydrometer for determining the specific gravity or the density of a liquid. Uh, so not just, like, water, but if you had, like, liquid mercury, you could, like, put that in and be like, oh, it's over 1.05. Actually, that's a urine. That's urine density. I have no idea what the <laughs> density of a... I like how I'm thinking the first thing is when, if you're making slip to test just how um, how dense it is for ceramics, like, if you're pouring it into a mold to cast. So that's what I go to, and I like how you go to urine. I, I mean, I'm a vet tech, so we yeah. do urinalysis all the time. Nice. Um, so, yeah, all she wanted to do was learn and teach mathematics in a world full of idiots that were too busy throwing their giant, fragile dicks around. It's sad how much of a recurring theme that is in life. It's, it's so bad. And the Throughout worst part the is she got, she got caught in the middle of it. What happened? <sighs> Do you remember Cyril and Orestes? Yes. They're back, and apparently they're in high school. Okay. Right. Can you remind me of their their positions? Cause... So Cyril was a... They're both Christians. Cyril was an archbishop, okay. and Orestes was a governor, a civil governor. So, so the have... civil, civil governor was a little bit more tolerant than the mm-hmm. archbishop. Bishop. Right. So he'd still okay. hold executions, but like he'd think about it first. Oh, <laughs> that's why I want my governor to be. <laughs> um, yeah. So you have the religious leader and you have the, the civil leader. Um, okay. So Cyril would shut down churches of like sects of Christianity that weren't exactly in line with his. And Orestes would be like, okay, that's an internal matter within the church. That's not my jurisdiction. Okay. Things like that happened a lot. 
There were there was one specific event that involved the Jewish community. Um, you know, you know, Jewish people don't work on the Sabbath, right? Yes. So instead, they did like public dance parties. Okay. <laughs> and the dancers got a lot of attention on those days, and things could get kind of like rowdy. And Orestes would get complaints, and he would be like, "Jesus Christ, okay, take it down." Here, have some guidelines on these dance parties. And one time while he was making one of those decrees to the public, there was a guy named Hierax, H-I-E-R-A-X, I don't know, in the crowd. And Orestes knew him. And apparently <laughs> this guy was loyal to Cyril, the, the archbishop. And Orestes just assumed that he was there to, like, spy for the church and step on his, like, political toes so yeah. Orestes was like, torture that guy. You're not going to undermine my civil rule with your like your religious shit. Cyril hears about this, doesn't blame Orestes, but instead decides to use Jewish people as an escape goat, as you do. Yeah. 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 Apparently, the really angry ones got together and plotted a massacre of random Christians. Uh, okay. They made a false alarm in the middle of the night saying the church was on fire. And as citizens were coming out to see what was going on, the extremists seized and slaughtered anyone out of their homes not wearing a ring made of palm leaves that they had earlier agreed to wear. So it was like a red bandana coming out of their back jean pockets. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So Cyril loses his shit and he banishes every... As, he... as you do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 banishes every Jew from the city of Alexandria. So Orestes goes, we need them for our economy. How dare you step over that line and take over my job? And they both got bitchy and wrote to the emperor in Constantinople. I don't know. I don't know why they did that, but they did that. Didn't do anything. Uh, so Cyril was like offering olive branches of peace out to Orestes but it was just a manipula manipulative way to get Orestes to chill out. Uh, and that it, was the bishop reaching out to the governor. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it wasn't a sincere thing. Uh, and Orestes knew it wasn't a, like a sincere thing. And he kept refusing Cyril's gestures because he was trying to be like, the good guy. Here, let's make friends. And Orestes was like, fuck you. Because pride. Things continue to escalate. Cyril decided that Orestes not taking that olive branch of peace was offensive and summoned a bunch of monks, right? And you're like, why would you need monks? Monks are great. You want to hug them all. Not these monks. They were fighting monks. There were about 500 of them. And they confronted Orestes, assuming that he wasn't Christian. So a fight broke out because of it, and one of the monks named Ammonius straight up hit Orestes over his head with a stone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So now the public gets involved to save Orestes and scatter the monks. Uh, and then once Orestes is feeling better, he orders the capture and torture of Ammonius. The monk. Okay. The torture gets so bad that Ammonius actually dies. Hmm. Cyril is done. He's livid. He puts the body in a place of honor in the church and calls him a martyr for Christianity. Christians are like, no, he tried to bludgeon our Christian governor in the head, not a martyr. That's not defending Christianity. 
Cyril gets mad, but people are questioning him. His feelings are hurt. People are siding with Orestes, and Cyril's pride is wounded. And it looks like Orestes has won this, right? Devoted Christians and monks can no longer defend the church by killing Orestes. So, like, the Christians who are angry about Orestes' actions, they wanted to kill him, but they couldn't because Orestes upped his security. So extremist eyes fell on one of Orestes' closest friends. Guess who that was? Oh, no. Yep. Hypatia. A rumor spread that it was Hypatia's influence who kept Orestes from saying no to peace when Cyril reached out for it. And that's when Christians got mad. So she was like a dirty Neoplatonist. She was causing discourse in the city, and that was a problem. Ugh, that damn woman. Right? It's all the woman's fault. So that's when the monks Cyril summoned earlier blocked the road her carriage was going down, pulled her out from it, dragged her into a church, stripped her naked, because that's what you fucking do with every woman, apparently, and beat her to death with a roofing tile. It gets worse. Once dead, they actually ripped her limb from limb, paraded her out into the street, and burned the fragments of her body. Okay. Yeah. All and, right. Uh, and that's the death of Hypatia. What What happened next? I mean, so okay, so I do know. So Orestes was super outraged and like, like he couldn't bring his friend back, but he, like, pushed for more like, like capping Cyril's power over. The, like the city like yeah. checking him like mm-hmm. wrote to the emperor of Constantinople uh, wrote to the emperor of Constantinople and was like yo like I know I imagine him like writing it out I mean like dear emperor you will not believe this shit yeah no I mean like how do you just come after somebody because she had she had she was a super public figure that was doing public work and she didn't have like guards or anything she was just trying to fucking teach and live her life and she got in the fucking middle of it. Like, she didn't even do anything. And people were like, her, she's the problem. Super sad. I'm not happy about this one, but I had to do it. Um, I, Did any of her, all those works, those books she wrote, do they survive to today? Oh, there are translations. Yeah, there are people who did it. Okay. Yeah. And, like, there's one particular book. That's like the the geometry book that's used mostly is the one that was rewritten by her and her dad. Okay, so her so. work is it's still relevant today and still influential then. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Yeah, that's like basic geometry and basic like the shit that we should have learned that you and I should have paid attention to. That's what she did. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been kind of shitty if we had gone the other way and I had gone first. Yeah. <laughs> and then she was torn limb to limb. The end. Thank you for listening to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. <laughs> if you like what you heard, Nana, where can they hear more about us? <laughs> All right. Are you ready? Okay. So the person I'm doing, she did not die a horribly violent death being torn limb from limb. Oh, that's good. Yeah, they're we're ending on a high note. Things will get a little heavy, and there were some things pulled from her. 
<gasps> yeah. Like part of her body? Maybe. Oh. But we'll get to that. No. So, I mean, this this one does have a happy ending. It does. Okay. But there's some bumps along the road. But we'll get there. We'll get there. Um. So, I, for this episode, did Judy Scott, a sculptor, working okay. primarily with found objects and uh, kind of wrapping them in fiber. Are okay. you familiar with her at all? She's fairly recent. We're jumping centuries in time <laughs> to the last few decades no i don't i'm not familiar with her okay. at all um so she is most well known for her work and being considered like an outsider artist because she has or had down syndrome and was well we'll get to some other stuff i don't want to spoil it so she was born in chicago in in may of 1943 to along with a, a twin sister joyce so we're in america and you know 1943 mm-hmm. born to like a very typical household mom was a homemaker dad was an accountant they lived outside the big city in ohio uh had three older brothers and you know kind of normal all the way around middle right. class through and through right so it was, it was super traditional family structure okay dad was the brighter bread earner mom you know, made the house look nice and pretty, raised the children. Mm-hmm. We're talking very typical, very conservative 1940 American expectations. Oh, fun. Yeah. Like, in the book later written by the sister Joyce, she describes her mother as very much of like, what will the neighbors think? Oh, no. Yeah, kind of attitude. So that's like, that's what we're opening up with. Gotcha. Now... One additional thing that really put pressure on the mom is the fact that Judy, and she was born Judith, but in the book her sister wrote, she calls her Judy all the time, so I'm going to call her Judy, um, was that she she had Down syndrome. And at the time, along with other special needs, the prevailing thought was that it was the mother's fault. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Everyone's like, well, the mom must have done something wrong. I mean, otherwise, why would you have a kid like that? Duh. Uh, Genetics. Uh, yeah, uh, I it's so it totally kind of happens by chance. There's no known cause of it, and it's the most common chromosome abnormality in humans. Mm-hmm. So, by the sister's account, Joyce, growing up, I, they were they were pretty much treated the same. Judy, she was a little different, but in that semi-rural family home, they they played just like any other kids. Right. One thing that was apparent was Judy's lack of speech development. Mm. She she could make sounds, but speech never really developed. Now, for her and her sister Joyce, that wasn't really an issue. I mean, they did everything together, and they had a very close bond, and they didn't necessarily need formal language in order to communicate. Right. But this did really kind of inhibit her education. And as I'll go over in a little bit, uh, her her condition was seen as or thought as uneducatable. Now, here's my question. Like, I know she couldn't speak, but could she, like, at least write things out, like, basic stuff to communicate with people? No. No. There there was no formal verbal or written communication at all. Or later on, there's a little bit of signing, but, like, no formal American Sign Language at all. Gotcha. Um, And you'll, you'll learn why in a little bit. So for two little girls that did everything together, it must have been very confusing for Judy when her sister Joyce went off to school and she stayed home. Mm. 
you know, because she was uneducatable. Mm-hmm. So the mom in the book that Joyce writes, you know, she confided in Joyce how that was a really difficult time for her. Judy would wander around looking for her sister and like the mom admitted to locking Judy in, in their bedroom. Oh, are you fucking kidding me? I mean, again, we're talking we're talking like 1950s. All the other kids are at school. The mom's left alone with her. And oh you got this God. little girl who just doesn't really understand. Like, where did my sister go? How come I'm not with her? And so the mom would kind of be like, well, just go to your bedroom and play. And you can't get out until I unlock the door. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I said, like, this is 1950s. And this mom, she's raising a special need kid. And there's no formal support network outside right. of the family. Like, special need organizations. And right. we're in a very conservative social climate where really, typically doctors would advocate sending the child to an insti- institution and forgetting about them. Oh, well, I guess that's better than that. Oh, well, one night when Joyce was seven, she woke up and her sister was gone. Oh, oh. Yeah. Oh. So on the insistence of the dad, little seven-year-old Judy was dressed, driven about two hours away, and left at the Columbus State School, which, when it originally opened in 1857, was known as the Ohio Asylum for the Education of Idiotic and Imbecile Youth. Oh, fucking hell. Yeah, no, that's not a place either one of us would want to be dropped off at. No. It, I mean, it was really, it was tough on the family. And understandably, her twin sister, Joyce, was devastated. I mean, this is her sister. Her twin sister, they did everything together. And suddenly she was at this special school and yeah. she didn't understand why. It was it was really tough on the mom, too. Um, typical with time, no one in the family really wanted to talk about it. And so the mom kept it bottled up and she went through depression and that led to a mental breakdown, which she did recover from. But Judy's absence in the family, it it left a noticeable difference, but one that no one wanted to talk about at all. Jesus Christ. I don't understand why people don't just say things like I don't. I mean, okay. I mean, I get it. I mean, the family that I grew up in, like I had a grandmother who didn't talk about things and I understand that she was a product of her time and that Judy was a product of her time and that Judy's mom was a product of her time but I don't know Mm -hmm. where that started where did that start how did that happen like where did that come from I mean that's a whole spinoff episode Alan's gonna be a multi-part one um but yeah I just very different social you know, conservative values in 1940s, 1950s America. Yeah. Talking post-World War II. And again, we do get to a happy ending. Okay. So shit, shit will, it, it, it moves on the up and up. Now, meanwhile, uh, the family would go usually mo- once a month to visit her. Mm-hmm. However, a year later, their dad had a heart attack and the visit stopped. And then they became really sporadic. And because of that, Judy's behavior at the institution, it worsened. I mean, she's she's eight years old, deemed to have an IQ of 30, so she doesn't qualify for educational or vocational training at the school. Her family's not visiting anymore, and she starts acting out. Yeah. Uh, her records state, quote, she does not seem to be in good contact with her environment. She does not get along well with other children, is restless, eats messily, tears her clothing, and beats other children. Her presence on the ward is a disturbing influence. Oh, my God. 
Maybe because nobody's paying the fuck attention to it. I, I, yes, there's a boatload of issues going on. And so because of this, she's moved to a smaller institution even further away. But later, her sister reflects on it and says that was actually probably a really good thing for her. Because she went to a much smaller institution, there is more of a one-on-one ratio between the right. the caregivers yeah. and the kids. So, I mean, that's something. But yeah. still pretty shitty. And it's kind of sad because later when the sister Joyce is seeking legal, legal guardianship of Judy, because mm-hmm. at a certain point she just became a ward of the state, um, she, you know, naturally requested records. And not long after being transferred to that second place in Ohio – in the in the mid fifties, um, you know, she's not even a teenager. Her records stop for about three decades. What? Yeah, like they're just a blank. Like they just there was nothing to note for years. Like they just like she just fell off there. They're just like, ah, eh, she's just there. Oh my god! It wasn't god. until the eighties. Yeah, it wasn't until the eighties that there's mentions in her records of some behavioral like modification programs that they started doing there. Ah, oh, fucking hell. She was just left her own devices for 30 years and nobody paid enough attention to her to write down what was going on with her. That's your fucking job. And I, and this is, I, I, as a medical professional, if you don't write your fucking notes, that's a problem. You need to find a new job. That's how you have, like, consistency in care. That's how you, like, like, I, what? That is unreal. Like, you know what? I think there's just no notes because no one was actually doing anything with her. They just let and her be. That's a problem, too. And that's how you're held accountable. If there are no notes, there's a reason for it. You're not doing your job. Just what were you doing? Why aren't you being held accountable? It's not okay. It's... So there, there were a lot of exposés done in kind of the 1950s, 60s that did result in the push for deinstitutionalization because they were they were poorly funded. And I'll touch on it in a little bit, but there was a lot of bad shit kind of going down. Oh, um, so, I know that there's a lot of bad shit out there. I, I get it. It's just it's just frustrating. Oh, it's yeah. I mean, this is just a little sliver of one person's experience for having special needs. Right. So this is yeah, this is nothing. Now, real quick on Down syndrome. So like I mentioned, growing up in that time period, there are no resources for Judy's family for learning what it's like to have a kid with special needs. Uh-huh. It wasn't until the 1960 that the National Association for Down Syndrome was formed. And you know, like other organizations for those with special needs, it started by the determination of the parents to make a better life for their children. I mean, they were fucking fed up with the lack of medical and social services. And so they went about getting that shit done themselves. Uh-huh. I mean, just like I briefly described with those that institutional setting, like that's what they were dealing with. There's just ship your kid away and forget about them, right? And never mind about where they are because they're getting shit services. Mm-hmm. And these parents were like, "No, this isn't right. This is fucked up. This isn't what we want for our kids. We deserve better, and they deserve better." And it, it wasn't until November of 1975 that kids with disabilities even had equal access to public education. President Ford had to sign legislature in place so that school systems couldn't deny education to kids because that's what they were doing. That's why Judy didn't go to school. Right. Because at the time, it was totally legally within the school system's right to be like, no, we don't want her. We can't teach her. She can't come. That's ridiculous. She's a seven-year-old. Like, how are you going to do that? And that was totally socially acceptable. People were okay with it. So it took a shit ton of advocating from these parents to actually make change. And it's 
it wasn't governmental change of hey we should do this better do this better it was it was parents who were like this is fucked up this is not okay right very much treated like second class citizens and <laughs> even worse up to 1984 there were cases of parents fatally intentionally denying medical care to their special need infants and one a baby doe was born with down syndrome which, you know, can come with a host of birth defects and other physical abnormalities. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, the parents and the doctors withheld not only medical treatment for a completely treatable defect, but they they withheld food and water as well. And after six days, the, the kid died. They were – and they weren't charged for it? No, it was completely at the time Ah, within the right to be like – our kid has special needs. It was um, often those with, with Down syndrome are born sometimes with some heart abnormalities. And the attorney general got involved afterwards because when he heard about the case, he was like, that's completely treatable. He's on, I've done so many of those surgeries. There's no reason why you couldn't have performed that on the infant and it right. would have been fine. This right. child would have still been alive. Holy fuck. Holy fuck indeed. And again, this is just such a tiny little sliver Oh of God. A, of what was going on with special needs. So again, we get to a happy ending. So we're just it gets a, it's a little heavy. Ah. Um, so ah. now you know there's prenatal testing at the ninth and fourteen weeks for Down syndrome, uh-huh. and there's lots of very strong you know nonprofits and support systems out there for family for families. Uh-huh. And it, again, I mean the, these programs were built on the determination of parents to get shit done. Right. They had to fight medical, educational, and social barriers just to make things better for their kids. Mm-hmm. And there's a really great book, and it covers the history of special needs in the United States and kind of broader internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, that one's more specific to autism, but it does a great job of covering this period. And it's titled In a Different Key by John Donovan and Karen Zucker. So that's a really great book to check out just to see how a lot of these parent groups kind of came to fruition and what the challenges of institutionalization have been and how we've moved away from that. And it's super informative and you guys should read it. It's a really great read. It moves it moves at a great pace. Now, there's still stigma associated with Down syndrome. Right. Um, but that doesn't stop the efforts of people for inclusion and equality. And by the time this podcast is out on Sunday, this past Thursday was World Down Syndrome Day. It's held every March 21st. And, oh. it, you know, it's the continuation to advocate for rights, inclusion, and the well-being of people with Down Syndrome. Pretty fucking cool. Yeah, because, I mean, we're talking about some pretty fucked up shit from yeah. the 50s. But, I mean, there's still some fucked up shit going on today. So, right. still, still got to fight against it. We're not done yet. Now, what Judy and her family went through... It was kind of only atypical in that they didn't send her away as an infant. And like I mentioned, like it was it was really common if you've got someone with a physical, a mental, an intellectual or de- or developmental disability, just put them in an institution, forget about them, move on. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in this in this country, since the colonial era, the idea was out of sight, out of mind. Out of mind. Yeah. yeah. And especially for those deemed imbeciles and feeble minded. And those were those are at certain points medical terms, and the idea that in their inhibited state they were really nothing more than a burden on society and thus considered less than. Now, 
In these institutions, there were efforts to educate and train in vocational skills, but mm-hmm. unfortunately, it was it was too common for inadequate staffing, poor medical care, physical and sexual abuse, and come the eugenics movement, federally sanctioned forced sterilization. Mm. Yeah. Because again, I mean, if these are people who are burdens on society, well, then we don't want them procreating and, you know, making things worse. Ah, uh, Yeah. Again, we get to a happy ending. Now, post-World War II, attitudes did begin to change. And that was because we've got these returning veterans and they were dealing with physical and psychological aftermaths of the war. Right. And the public, they were more sympathetic to that. And so because of that acknowledgement that these young men need help, that's what helped, you know, create the push for deinstitutionalization in the mid to late 20th century. Uh, so while this is going on, I mean, Judy's still sitting in one institution. And for, for 35 years, she's in an institution. She's a ward of the state. But her sister Joyce has not forgotten about her at all. Good. And Good. Yeah, no, like at all. Um, you need that in one 2016, sibling. <laughs> hmm? You need that one sibling in your life. And yeah, that's, I mean, she's it. Yeah. Um, in 2016, Joyce released her book, Entwined, Sisters and Secrets in the Silent World of Artist Judith, Judith Scott. And in it, she details from how the moment she woke up as, you know, that night as a little girl and she found her twin sister gone, she never forgot about Judy. She'd visit her as a kid and then later, you know, she'd visit her as much as she could given that she, you know, moved out of the state. And it, it was on one of these later visits that she, she sees Judy and sees that all her teeth are gone oh no yeah um so apparently you know she was able to get an explanation out of the attendant that well it was just easier for everyone if they just pulled out her teeth (laughs) wait what what problem is solved by pulling out teeth what did they say well, was the issue? you know, they could have dental issues and get, you know, cavities. And if they're not good with their dental hygiene, then that can affect their health. And if they don't go, like going to the dentist, that can be really stressful. So if they just pull out all their teeth, that just makes it easier for everyone. Oh, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Tell me that she stabbed that nurse on the spot. Well, she didn't include that in her book. And... um <laughs> Um, potential attempted murder charge might have hindered her later um, legal guardianship just, oh. um, for Judy. Um, no. But no, again, fucked up. I mean, this is a woman who's nonverbal and can't consent. And someone thought it was in their best interest to be like, well, it's just easier if you just pull out her teeth. Unfucking real. I mean, not like yours where she was pulled limb from limb, but yeah. still really fucked up. But I mean, yeah. I- it was fucked up that she was pulled limb from limb, but she was dead at that point. She didn't feel that. Fair. Yeah. Continue. Yeah. No, understandably, uh, Joyce was not fucking happy at no. all. So in the book, I mean, she describes how she had rough spots in her own life. But come 1985, her and her sister, 42, um, after a year of legal negotiations, she gains legal custody of Judy. She's her legal guardian from now on. Woo! Um, yes, that's awesome. Yeah. So think shit's moving forward. And it was in the process of gaining guardianship that Joyce is told that Judy's deaf. And like growing up, everyone just thought 
that her lack of language was part of her disability. And when she was initially institutionalized, that's why she scored so low on the oral IQ test administered as a child. The one that kept her from educational and vocational training. So she's smarter than people think? It, there was a point when she was little that someone took away crayons from her and legit told her, you're too retarded to color. Uh, what? Yeah. I, how like, is that even a thing? I mean, that just shows how warm and fuzzy living in an institution was in the 1950s. Oh. Yeah, she, she had a bout of scarlet fever as a very young child, and that presumably is what left her deaf. But expectations were so low for her. It wasn't challenged when she couldn't respond to others, when she couldn't speak. Everyone just thought, like, oh, well, that's just how she is. Right. No big deal. Right. And again, that kind of goes back to the family, like, not having the resources to know, like, no, like, that's not normal. Like, we know you have a kid with special needs, but, like, this, that's a little different. Yeah. After 1985, when Judy moves out to be with her sister Joyce, her life is a complete 180. She lives with her sister's family in California. And it's the first time since the age of seven she's she's living a normal life. Right. Eventually, she settles in a group home not far from her sister Joyce and their family. And most importantly, she's enrolled in the Creative Growth Art Center in Oakland, California. At which age again? Oh, uh, 42. 42. Oh, my gosh. An entire life. It's. Yeah, but they they really Joyce did an amazing job making sure that her sister could do whatever she wanted and was able to you know right. fully to to really truly I think make up for all, all those years that she she didn't have access to anything and she was really denied so much. Now the art center that she enrolls Judy in is absolutely amazing and wonderful. It's the first and longest running nonprofit art center art studio in the United States that serves artists with developmental, mental, and physical disabilities, founded in 1974. Very cool. Um, and there, Judy, along with every other artist, receives professional attention for whatever their medium and choice, be it painting or woodworking or ceramics. Mm. Um, and in addition to that, they received professional development and gallery exhibition and representation. Holy shit. Yeah, like this is a big deal because this program is in huge contrast to the typical day programs available to those with special needs at the time right these things called shelter workshops were common and in it individuals were doing really tedious really repetitive tasks for very low wages because they were disabled meant that they could be paid less than minimum wage and Mm -hmm. at times they were paid pennies on the hour oh my god yeah so we're talking doing really repetitive things like, you know, folding bags um, or like boxes or just super, super tedious things. Again, it kind of goes back to very low expectations. Right. Um, and for the first two years, well, Judy's there at the, the art center. You know, every Monday to Friday, she she's working, but she seems really disinterested in about everything they try. And that's until... There's a visiting artist. It's this woman, Sylvia Seventy, fiber artist. And at first, you know, she's doing a workshop with everyone. Judy's not really paying attention. Happens to walk by, catches her eye. And she is all about it all of a sudden. And seeing this woman work and, you know, doing a workshop for whatever reason was kind of the creative spark that Judy needed to, like, 
completely jump into sculpture mode. Okay. Uh, after after seeing this woman working, um, where she was previously, you know, kind of non-committally painting circles and scribbles on paper, she developed her own language with these fiber sculptures. Um, and some of them, she would work for months at a time completing these pieces. What do you mean um, by language? Like Her sculptures, in a way, I think became her way of communicating and kind of expressing like her own narrative and her own inner world. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. The way she went about making it was like uniquely hers. So other artists at the center, they were using like t- traditionally conventional art making techniques. But Judy just had this sudden like raw energy in her approach. Um, she would use any object that caught her eye. So from like bike tires to car keys and once right. even a paycheck. A what? She was just kind of like a paycheck. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, someone grabbed it, but she essentially had free reign to go around the art center and anything that caught her eye, she could take. And she would kind of like amass these objects into these like unknown forms and just wrap and entwine them and cocoon them in like cloth and yarn. Oh, Jesus. So you'd have these like these big sculptures and maybe sometimes you'd look at them and be like, oh, well, I can tell that's a fill in the blank. But yeah. With so many things, you're like, I have no idea what's inside that. So it becomes really fun. And I, the results are really striking. It, initially, her early work, can it looks fairly chaotic. There are these elongated forms. And there's just this, like, dizzying intensity in how she's just taken, like, yarn and fiber and just wrapped them around. But the more you look at her work, over the 200 pieces she made over 18 years, she really develops this refinement in her sense of form and color. And the results are they're really amazing. Practice makes perfect. Yeah, because at first you look and you're like, what the hell is going on? And you're like, oh, you know, you can see her eye for color, how she's approaching it. You know, you look and you're like, this this is the work of an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, there there was a bit in 1994 when there was an earthquake that hit the area. And um, because of that, the center had to have some remodeling done because of the damage. So for the most part, everyone was taken out on like field trips during the day. Mm-hmm. But Judy's working. She wants to work on her sculptures. So they set up an area for her. So in the midst of, like, all this construction work and all this really loud sound, she's just, like, quietly working away because, like, she's deaf. She can't hear it. One piece she made during this time was really fun. So there came a point, you know, everyone else is pretty much out and about. So she's left her her own devices. She runs out of of yarn and fiber. Mm Mm-hmm. So she realizes that she can use the um, paper towel rolls from the bathroom because they're just like those really big, long, (laughs) continuous rolls. Yeah. And so she's able to take – she just like would bundle up just feet worth at a time and then take it and knot it together and just – so there's this one piece and it's this big form that's just – it's like all white from the paper towels that she just knotted and twisted and tied together. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, so there's there's just great energy that for whatever reason this this visiting artist just happened to, you know, kind of nudge her in the right direction and right. she just she just like unleashed all this creative energy. Right. Um so compared to what she was living in before, I mean this is again, it was complete one eighty. So given that Judy is deaf and nonverbal, I these sculptures really are a way of communicating. In her book, Judy's sister Joyce recalls seeing a piece and and crying. Cause she looked at it and right away she knew it was about her and her sister. There are these two twin forms embracing and entwined together. Oh my God. Yeah, and again that'll be in the show notes, but so even That's... though Judy 
traditionally wasn't able to, you know, to talk, her sculptures became her way of saying things. So really, you know, really, really powerful. I'm crying over here. I'm fine. And given the fact that Judy was nonverbal, I mean, we'll never quite know just what she had in mind when she was making her art. But regardless, her artwork has found its place in the contemporary art world. So her rise to international fame highlights the gradual appreciation of the fine art world to outsider art. And Judy is an artist, you know, in her own right. And her work has eclipsed the circumstance of her path to art making. Now, are you familiar with outsider art at all? Nope. It was initially termed by an English critic, uh, a Roger Cardinal, in 1972. And it was meant to expand on this term called art brute. And art brute developed as a term for those making art outside of not only the art world, but society at large. So primarily, it was those in institutions. um, And this came about in the early 1900s. Outsider art sought to include more people, although socially marginalized people still outside the fine art world we're talking people um that are poor incarcerated or mm-hmm. those with physical emotional developmental or intellectual disabilities but no that's pretty solid yeah so we're pulling out from art just made by essentially mental patients and in institutions to you know a, a broader kind of audience and there's this really great museum in baltimore maryland i don't know if you've been the american visionary art museum nope i tried no. to steer oh my God. away from baltimore Okay, well, the next time that you and I are in the area that we could do a day trip there, because they've got some really amazing work, and that's a museum um, that is is dedicated to visionary art and outsider art. They have an amazing collection, and to me, it really respects the art and the artists. When we have people um, that could potentially have mental health issues or other things that put them at a disadvantage unfortunately it's really easy for someone like a you know high art world collector to cash in on these vulnerable populations that's totally happened before um yeah and that's where their creative growth art center and judy's sister joyce they've been really important in professionally representing judy and her art yeah you need that you need that backup yes yeah no i mean i think yeah they're really the reason um judy has gone from you know like a outsider artist to hitting international recognition as being a contemporary 20th century sculptor and at joyce she's the reason judy was able to express herself when she gained guardianship to move out to california in her book she describes wanting nothing but the best for judy and as judy's work has gained rec- recognition um judy was there supporting her when judy had her first large show open at the creative growth art center uh, and that coincided with a release of a book about her and her work by art historian John McGregor that was titled Metamorphosis, the Fiber Art of Judith Scott. This helped launch her into a larger international recognition. In the 1990s, there was this gaining momentum of outsider art being shown in contemporary galleries and museums, in part because the notion of outsider became less fetishized and more accepted as fine art in its own right. And that's kind of similar to how women's art was for decades seen as like this other category. Yeah, like, oh, she decided to paint today. Look at her. And I'd be like, no, this is a painting. Like, it's, but it's like, you know, this otherness associated with. Um, Yeah. So that's become kind of less of a thing with outsider art. It's just seen as a, a different way people have gone about making art, different formal channels of education. And, you know, from the start, the creative growth, they they treated Judy as an artist. So while she's coming from a non-traditional background, she received the professional attention and care and 
that's what got her work into museums like like the the Maryland American Visionary Art Museum, uh, the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, the Irish Museum of Modern Art in Dublin, and a whole host of other international collections. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why you should give a fuck about your job, because maybe one day it'll make a fucking difference. Yeah, you know, and I didn't think about that, because in these institutions, like, I I mean, it's not to say there weren't people who actually cared, but the overall attitude was like, eh, fuck it. And these people were very much taken advantage of in not being able to advocate for themselves. And so these workers yeah. were not advocates for these people. Yeah, no. And that's, honestly, it's, that's... Makes you want to shank them. Yeah, no. Yeah. No, no, that's in every part of the medical field. Like, you get like run down with the same like shitty pay, shitty bosses, whatever, and then you see the same fucked up shit every day, and you start to get like immune to the things, and you shouldn't be immune to those things. Yeah, it's like it's not even in like human medicine. It's also in like veterinary medicine. Like before I got that job, now I like. I, like, started in shelter medicine, and you start to see the same things every day. You start to get, like, jaded, and you really have to take a step back and tell yourself, no, there's a reason I'm still here. Sorry. Keep going. I mean, there's there's passion at the Creative Growth Art Center. And like you mentioned, like, these people, they they made a difference in how much the care and the passion and the commitment to the artists that they work with. Yeah. And and her sister, too. I mean, she helped facilitate all of this. Right. You know, when Judy had, when she would have international art show openings, Joyce would go in her place, um, like at the collection of Le Art Brut in Switzerland. And that's that's like our premier collection of art brut and outsider art. And Joyce went and represented Judy. And, you know, she also, under guidance, allowed filmmakers to come and to document Judy and her process and her art. And that kind of, you know, exposed people, you know, a wider audience to Judy and what she was doing. Something different, yeah. Um, so between her sister Joyce and those at the Creative Growth Art Center, I mean, they their passion really shows and, you know, really helped Judy bridge the gap between outsider art and fine art with all the work and dedication that they put in. That's so great. Yeah. And because of that, like I mentioned, like she's considered like this key figure and, you know, a really influential 20th century sculptor because of that. Right. Um, And considering the low expectations for a kid with Down syndrome born in the 1940s, what Judy accomplished was really amazing. And like her mother finally did eventually come around. It was actually a article written in Reader's Digest. Hmm. That, for whatever reason, suddenly, like, her mom, who by then was in a nursing home and still very prim and proper and kind of stuffy, was was really proud of her daughter. But that it took decades to finally get just that more immediate family recognition of, no, what Judy's doing is important. And she's legit a an international contemporary artist. Holy shit. Yeah. Because for a while, her, I mean, at a certain point, Joyce gave their mother like one of judy's sculptures and uh fast forward a few years and her mother had moved out of the house and into a nursing home and one of the brothers was like oh yeah mom mom was gonna throw it out so i saved it oh fuck her i mean like holy fuck like this is this these are sculptures that go for thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars are you kidding me i mean but again eventually like the mom came around it just it took a while and when you're you know, ingrained in such certain social expectations and cultures. It's, it can be hard to make the, those changes. Ugh. Fuck social norms. I know. I know. 
Um, now, come 2005, uh, at the age of 60, Judy did pass away, uh, a little bit just shy of her, her 61st birthday. Actually, she, she like, died in the arms of her sister. Yeah, because I feel like the median or mean age of people with, like, Down syndrome, their life expectancy, they don't live very long, right? No. No, it's about average. So, in the 1980s, ex- life expectation of someone with Down syndrome was only to about 28 years. And that was in large part because the majority of people with Down syndrome were institutionalized and they received absolute shit medical care. Um, Yeah. And and so, again, you know, with that subpar medical care, like, pulling out all their teeth because going to the dentist was just too hard. And given the fact that they're a little bit more prone to heart issues – you know, if no one's actually proactively taking care of that, of course you're going to have people passing away early. Now life expectancy is at least 60 years. So with the support of her sister, um, the amazing people at the Creative Growth Arts Center, I mean, she redefined what was possible for someone, you know, being a deaf Down syndrome artist. And so that is Judy Scott. Oh, that's awesome. Amazing fiber artist. So see, we got to a happy ending. Yeah, we ended up on a we, on a good note. Yeah, some pretty shitty spots. Yeah. Um, but we got there in the end. Happy ending. Not torn limb to limb nope. by Christian mercenary military monks. Militant monks. Yeah. I think we should celebrate the power of uh, of a sibling that you trust and love. Like sibling relationships. So I think... We should ask our listeners a question about that. Yeah. So that was my one criticism of the book that Joyce Mm -hmm. wrote um, is that she touches on some like some hard spots in her own life. And, you know, she does open up about some things, but um, like she only has the highest praises for her sister. Right. And I was like, that is great and amazing. And you have done so much for her. And you can just tell like your undying love. But for the love of fuck, there's points your sister just got on your nerves and you wanted Absolutely, to kill her. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> like, that, uh, like, that's something to be ashamed of. Like, everyone who has a sibling, but we're like, well, yeah, yeah. duh. Like, <laughs> I want to kill them, but I love them until the ends of the earth. And so that was the only bit I was like, ah, I feel like you're just being a little disingenuous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're like, everything's perfect. I love her so much. Like, yeah. no, there's times you wanted to kill yeah. that woman. And there's nothing wrong in a formal publication admitting it. Yeah. That's how you get real and raw and how people stick around. Yeah. All right. So. Once again, if you've made it this far, God bless (laughs) you. We definitely appreciate it, guys. And I think there's there's a few someones in particular Milana wants to thank. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, that was loud. Yes. So we have maybe like 10 listeners, but we very consistently have a few people who listen to every episode and we know who you are. And I know a few of them and I'm not going to say their name because I don't want to screw with their privacy, but you know who you are. So thank you. And then we have the one outlier, the one Finnish listener. This person has been listening every single episode. And we don't know anyone in Finland. so We don't. So shout out to you, our mystery Finnish listener. We love you. Thank you so much. We do. Thank you. Uh, All right, Milana. So if people want to find out more about this episode and see the show notes, where can they go to find out more? 
All right. So we have a website. It's called myfavoritefeminists.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram under My Favorite Feminists. Uh, we are on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And in that comment section under the iTunes reviews, you can go ahead and tell us what's the most annoying thing your sibling has ever done. Because we love our siblings, but they're going to go ahead and annoy us every once in a while. Oh, my God. These brothers. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I honestly got on his nerves more than he did mine because he was honestly my hero. Uh, but there were some times where he got under my skin a little bit. And I think, oh, yeah. I, yeah. I, think I used to, like, uh, complain about him to you before you knew him. Do you remember that? And now you're dating him. Shh. You've said too much. We're going to have to edit this out. What? Ah, no, it's fine. It's <laughs> fine. We don't know his name. We don't have to say his name. Uh, what has yours done that's frustrated you? Oh, God. I There's so much. Um, <laughs> he's the youngest. He is. Yeah, he's the younger little brother. Um, Thanks for listening, guys. As always, thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Come on, party. Come on, sister. Come on, praise her. Come on, party. Come on, praise